And we can read again verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I wonder what we regard as the most remarkable verse in the Bible. Perhaps when that kind of question, which is actually a very strange question, but um, when that kind of question is asked, what verse comes into your mind? Perhaps John 3.16, which is probably the one of the first verses we learned by heart. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. <laughs> the Bible in miniature has been called. But I don't I don't know if you think that's true or not. But anyway, that is often said about John 3 and 16. Or we might go to the shortest verse in the English Bible anyway. Where we're told that Jesus wept. And that's an extraordinary sight, isn't it? I mean, he's not weeping after failing to do something. He's actually weeping before he does something spectacular. Because he, as we know, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. And in a couple of minutes' time, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But there he is. Prior to doing that extraordinary miracle, he's not saying to the crowd, is he? (laughs) Just wait till you see this. Rather, he's saying to them, tears, weeping. He wasn't weeping necessarily over Lazarus as such but just at the surrounding sorrow that permeated the whole atmosphere. What kind of saviour do we want for our world today? With all its tragedies, the mess we're in. We need someone that weeps, surely. Or we might go to something like, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Doesn't mean, or he doesn't say, David doesn't say, I shall not want. At this moment, but I don't know about tomorrow. 
But he just affirms it. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I will never want. And of course, what makes verses remarkable to us sometimes is our experience of them. And there might be a danger that we only read verses that we've experienced. And in the process of following that kind of method, we fail to notice other profound verses. And for what it's worth, I think verse 26 is one of the profoundest verses in the Bible. Why? Well, for a start, the Trinity's mentioned in it. In a few short words, few short phrases, sorry, the Savior, who of course is the eternal word, the ultimate communicator, who knows how to speak, who always knows what to say, who can say things concisely and without any exaggeration says everything very clearly. And here he tells us about what the Trinity wants to do for us. If we are the people of God, just what they're going to do for us. They don't have to expand it. They just have to say it. And as we look at it, we can see they're going to do lots of things. Indeed, in this verse, Jesus says five things. Five things about the Holy Spirit. And if we took them to heart, there would be no gloomy days. What are the five things? Well, he tells us the help is coming. That's the first one, isn't it? When the helper comes. Who's he? And the second one is, the Father's involved, whom I will send to you from the Father. Why should the Father be involved? And what does it mean for Jesus to send him? And then thirdly, there's the spirit of truth. But what kind of truth? Is truth referring to his character? When he's called the spirit of truth? Or is he referring to his activities? What he will do? 
And then there's the fourth one. Who proceeds from the Father? I mean, why is that verb in the present tense? Why doesn't it say proceeded from the Father? Or will yet proceed from the Father? But there it is in the present tense there. And in a verse that's describing the future, why does Jesus use a present tense in that phrase? And then there's the fifth one. He's going to bear witness. When the helper comes, he's going to bear witness about Jesus. How will he do that? So I'd just like us to think about these um, five things briefly today. The helper who's been sent, who is truth, who proceeds, and who testifies. So first of all, the helper. I'm sure we all know that the word that's translated helper has a variety of options when it comes to its meaning. And the, the meaning often depends on the context. For example, as quite often this word in some translations is translated comforter. (coughs) When the comforter comes, and of course, the word comforter is a very warm word, isn't it? And we all like comfort. But of course, the word, the problem with the word comfort is it might not be as full as the word helper. Or you could have the other translation that's given off it sometimes is the word counselor. And that's not, so, that's not so warm as comforter, is it? Because counselor implies that there's something missing. That we need help, we need insight, we need information. But it's good to know that he's able to give it, isn't it? But where does he give it? And how does he give it? And uh, another way it's translated is the word advocate. The Apostle John uses the same word when he says in his first letter, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If any man sin, we have a helper with the Father. So the word's got a variety of meanings. And it just tells us it's a very rich word. A word that's suitable, we could say, almost for every circumstance. And all these uh, options, renderings, whether comforter, counselor, advocate, helper, they all mean company. Because the word just basically means someone who comes alongside. 
We might get comfort from somebody in a letter. But it's not the same as the person being present, is it? Or somebody might send us counsel in an email. But it's not the same as the person being present. And an advocate... Well, there are situations where we want him right there, her right there. But it's good to have somebody right beside us. Indeed, Jesus says in chapter 14 and verse 17 about this coming helper, that not only will he be beside you, he'll be in you. Which actually means it's impossible to avoid his company. Wherever you are, if you trust in Jesus, there is the Holy Spirit. Inside you. It's not inside you the way Food goes inside you. You can't feel him. He's there. In your mind. In your affection. Just there. So. Helper. Here looks to me, for what it's worth, that the thrust of the word is to do with an advocate. Because he goes on to say, he shall bear witness. So it looks to me as if the help that's been provided here is advocacy. That somehow or other, constantly, The Holy Spirit is going to tell us something about Jesus. He'll just bear witness. I wonder if he's doing that at the moment. Because he should be. What does... When we have a helper or a counsellor or a comforter or an advocate or at least somebody claiming to be that, we would like to know exactly what he's like, wouldn't we? If we needed an advocate for some reason and we asked, well, how do we know that he's the best? We need someone to compare them with. And Jesus himself gives us the answer to that as well. When he says in verses that we know very well in John chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. In the language that the New Testament was written in, there's two words for another. You can have another item 
for one word which has got no connection to the thing you might be holding. There's also another word translated another which means another thing of exactly the same kind. And that's the word that Jesus uses here. I am going to give you another helper. A helper, says Jesus, who is exactly the same as me. What was Jesus like to the disciples? What comfort did he give? What counsel did he give? What testimony did he give? What help did he give? Well, the four Gospels are full of it, aren't they? Constant activity by the one who was beside them, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is going to do exactly the same thing. That's what Jesus says here anyway. He actually said to the disciples, and this is a good verse for us, he said to them, it is better for you that I go away. Because if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. I mean, imagine if Jesus was still here, living in Israel. How far would he be from us? Several thousand miles. But since the Spirit is here, after Jesus going away, how close is the Spirit? Doesn't matter where you are. You can be in Israel. Japan, Argentina. You could even be on the moon. It's the same distance. So a wonderful helper. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. The heavenly dove. It's him that makes Christianity authentic. And then there's this second statement about him. Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father. This is obviously a future event. Not that far away in the future, but uh, when Jesus was speaking here, it was about 50 days away, slightly over 50 days, Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. So Jesus here is speaking about an event that's going to happen in a few weeks' time. And obviously, how do you think he said this? Was he excited? 
whom I will send. The next stage in the great plan of redemption. This is what Jesus died for, of course, isn't it? He died so the Holy Spirit could come. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, the Holy Spirit wouldn't be here in the sense that Jesus is talking about. What is Jesus talking about when he says, I will send him? Why couldn't he just give him to give the Spirit to them there and then? He doesn't mean, of course, that they don't have the Spirit. Of course they have the Spirit. They couldn't be his disciples without having the Spirit, but he's actually indicating to them that what they've had so far is not really to be compared to what's going to happen in six weeks' time. If you had heard this announcement, would you find the six weeks long? Because Jesus is talking about his ascension. What a wonderful event that was. He's not the first to ascend to heaven. I mean, Elijah did, didn't he? Up there in a chariot of fire. But as Jesus, his ascension, he just ascended. And eventually, as Luke tells us, the disciples saw him go into heaven. Which, of course, is a very interesting description. He didn't just go up and up and up until he became a wee dot. They saw him enveloped in the cloud of glory as he entered heaven. I don't know if they heard it or not. But as he entered... Heaven was singing. And as he entered, he heard a welcoming voice. Sit at my right hand. And when he sat there, the Father gave him the Holy Spirit. Not because he needed the Spirit personally, but he gave it to him to send to the world. This had been a promise the Father had given to him. If you go to the cross and pay the penalty for sin, I will give you the Spirit, and you will pour him out. And through that means my power will be exhibited throughout the world. A wonderful event, the ascension, isn't it? It's all part of the plan of salvation. We need a ruling Savior, an exalted Christ, 
a triumphant king, one who's got all power everywhere. And there he is now, and he reigns. But as we look at that statement in verse 26, Jesus has got no doubts, does he? I mean, where is he going to be in a few hours' time after he says this? Well, he's going to be dragged before Pilate and Herod. Before then, he's going to be in great distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as we see him here in the upper room, what confidence he has. I'm going to do this. Whom I will send. And whom I will send to you. It's not just I'll somehow rather open the windows of heaven and down this spirit will come with no fixed purpose. But I will send him to you from the Father, the Heavenly Father. As Jesus himself said to his disciples, if you then be evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The best thing we can ask from the Father is the Holy Spirit. It was a mar- remarkable sending, wasn't it? And then there's the teacher. The spirit of truth. Because he's a spirit of truth, it means he cannot lie, nor can he make a mistake. I mean, that's the arrival of some amazing person, isn't it? He can't lie, and he can't make a mistake. When he comes, there's going to be constant truth. That's all he'll convey. Of course, it raises the question, what kind of truth will he convey? And Jesus himself tells us that, doesn't he? Tells us in John chapter 16. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The word all is interesting, isn't it? He'll guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father hath is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What truth is Jesus going, sorry, is the Holy Spirit going to teach? And the truth is that he's going to teach is the things of Christ. Spurgeon once said on one occasion, About this, he said, observe that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ 
by showing to us the things of Christ. Where are the things of Christ? Where can we see them? If he's going to show them to us, we must be able to see them. So where are the things of Christ? There's only one place that we can find them. It's in his word. They're not tangible things. I mean, we cannot take a hold of a promise and hold it in our hands. We may have it on a piece of paper and have that piece of paper in our hand. But that in itself doesn't mean we have the promise. The promise has to be given to us by the Holy Spirit. And he has to give it to us in our hearts and in our minds. But all these things, that the, the truth about Jesus, we can't find them anywhere else but in his word. And the Holy Spirit He's going to take the things of Christ in his word and reveal them to us. Isaiah 53. What a graphic picture. Revealing to us there the sufferings of the cross can be moved at the description of the Savior's agony. Some women watched him go to the cross and they were moved by his agony. But he said to them, don't weep. We need the Spirit Look at Isaiah 53. Who nailed him to the tree? What's the Holy Spirit going to say to you and to me about nailing Jesus to the tree? You did it. I did it. Why is he there? Your sin. My sin. He's not there showing us how to die. He's not there as a brave martyr. He's there as a savior. Paying the penalty for our sin. And the Holy Spirit, he shows us that. Takes to the things of Christ's glory as well, of course. The wonders of the kingdom of God. Things that people cannot touch or see. But with the Spirit's enabling, we realize them. The Holy Spirit speaks accurately, and He speaks appropriately. 
and he speaks abundantly. Spirit of truth at work in our hearts. He has to be because it's the only way it happens. Then there's a fourth thing, this rather unusual use of language in a verse full of future tenses. We have this reference in the present tense. Who proceeds from the Father. And here we're standing on the edge of a great mystery. The life of God. What happens between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has been going on since eternity. Constant. The Spirit proceeds from him. We don't understand it. But why should we be able to understand it? We are finite. This word proceed describes the infinite. It's the best word that we can use to describe the constant interaction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We worship at this line. We find ourselves at the limits of our intelligence. And we can't take a step more beyond it. That we should bow. How can someone live in the constantly in the present? The one who changes not. And lastly, the witness. He shall bear witness. He'll bear witness about me. If anybody else had said this, it would be somebody speaking with far too high an opinion of himself. But because it's Jesus that said it, it is the wisest statement. The Holy Spirit wants to speak about the best of subjects. And when he comes to speak about Jesus, well, God has got nothing else to say beyond that. If we hear not what he says about Jesus, he's got nothing else to say to us. He'll bear witness to me, says Jesus. How does the Spirit do that? Well, we thought about it in a certain sense, objectively, he does it in the Bible. He inspired it. He got Moses to start writing, and he got Isaiah to start writing, and he got Paul to start writing. Why? So he could bear witness to us. Objectively, we have the Bible. There it is, full of Jesus. He himself said that, didn't he? Search the scriptures. 
because they testify of me. But he also informs us and he convicts us and he constrains us. He works on our minds, our intellects. He not only sharpens them, he enlightens us. He stimulates our affections. We find ourselves loving the Savior that a year ago we didn't think two minutes about. He compels us to believe in him. We do it as free as anything we've ever done. And yet it's all the result of his activity. It's good for us that the Holy Spirit bears witness, isn't it? You know, the devil will try and do the opposite. Think about anything else apart from Jesus. Holy Spirit, he testifies of Christ. He can do it to you at this moment. And you might hate every word of it. Or he can do it to you at this moment. And you might love every word of it. Which one is it? It's only you that knows, apart from the Holy Spirit. He takes Jesus right to us. He takes Jesus even into us. He shows us who he is. We either delight in it, or we don't. It's really quite solemn, isn't it? To have the Holy Spirit working within us. But anyway, I do think this verse is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. Because it tells us the way to spiritual life. I hope all of us experience what Jesus was describing. That when the Helper comes, whom he has already sent from the Father, as far as we are concerned, but he's still the Spirit of Truth, and he's still proceeding from the Father, full of energetic life. And because he is, he testifies to who Jesus is and what we need. Shall we pray?